Good to see you this morning. I want to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. I'm beginning a series of messages this morning. We're going to light a New Testament fire out of an Old Testament forest. And that's the book of Ruth. And so I hope you'll be with us for the next few weeks as we consider this little four-chapter precious book. It has become one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. It is one of two books dedicated and named after a woman in the Bible. The book of Ruth is a book about a Gentile lady who married a Jewish man. The other book named for a lady is the book of Esther. And that book is about a Jewish lady who married a Gentile king. Now, the interesting thing, ladies, about these two books is that they're both dedicated to the purpose of preservation. Uh, in the case of Ruth, it is the preservation of the Messianic line. And we'll see that especially when we get to chapter 4 and the birth of the baby. You know, you, su you should suspect any book that starts in Bethlehem and ends with the birth of a baby. Uh, you need to suspect that book has something to say about the Messiah. And you'll certainly be right about the book of Ruth. It's talking about the preservation of the Messianic line. And of course, Esther is about the preservation of the Jewish race. Uh, had it not been for Esther, uh, the Jews would have been annihilated, uh, uh, and really all of them would have been killed in Persia. Uh, had it not been for Ruth, we would never have had a King David. So they both were preserving things. Ladies, you always are the preservers in this culture, and you need to know that, that you are vital. Uh, it is the hand that rocks the cradle that saves the world. And thank you, ladies, for all you do. You should appreciate the book of Ruth. It is an incredible book. I, I, I'm going to begin. Your outline gives you three different points. But uh, I just want to tell you a, a story about um, C.S. Lewis told. It's really not a story. It's kind of a parable. He illustrated how God uses adversity by talking about a, a man out walking his dog. And the dog somehow wraps his leash around a pole and wants to continue to go forward. But the man, the master, realizes that in order for him to go forward, then first of all, he's got to pull him backwards. <laughs> and so the dog and the master have different agendas. The dog wants to go forward, and the master is trying to pull him back, unwrap the leash so he can go forward again. God uses adversity that way. Sometimes we think God's being cruel to us. Uh, we think God's backing us up. But all God is trying to do is get us prepared to go forward. And what we see in the book of Ruth is uh, Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech have wrapped their life's pole, uh, their life uh, around a pole. And God is using adversity to try to bring them back to Bethlehem. So we're going to look at a word we don't hear much of today, but it's a vital word in the Christian life, and it's the word providence. 
So we want to talk today about, first of all, about providence. And I, I just want to share with you a providence to appreciate. Uh, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to uh, kind of do a, a, a verse by verse of that to show you the providence at work behind the scenes. I ask you to stand with me, and let's read together Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now skip down to verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was, when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, Lord, would you please open our hearts and minds to the truth in these wonderful verses, and may we glean from this incredible story everything you want us to receive. Give us open hearts to hear what you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice with me a providence to appreciate. The word providence is not a word we use every day anymore. Uh, sometimes you'll run across churches that are named Providence Baptist Church. Have you ever wondered what that really means? It is a it is a precious theological term. Uh, the word providence means the care or benevolent guidance of God. It is how God works behind the scenes to accomplish His goodwill. Now God uses what we call secondary sources to accomplish His primary will. By that God uses things that are not necessarily miraculous. They're everyday happenings in the life of the believer. They're things that we're prone to just kind of overlook and not think deeper about why God has allowed that to happen. Well, we're going to see how God works providentially in the life of Naomi and Ruth to get them from Moab back to Bethlehem. Now, let's look at the first five verses a little more deeply. It opens up by saying, in the days when the judges ruled, which gives us a good time frame for the book. Uh, the judges 
ruled at a time which is, I suppose we could call the dark ages of Israel's history. Uh, it was a time that's explained best by just reading the last verse of the book of Judges. Turn your Bible over one page and look at Judges 21-25. In those days, that's the day of the Judges. That's the day when Ruth uh, was written. Uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, does that sound familiar? Aren't we living in that culture today where there are no absolutes? Everybody does right in his own eyes. Notice he doesn't say everybody does wrong in their own eyes. They're doing what they think is right. And so many times today we see that where when you try to talk to someone who doesn't know the Lord and they will respond something like this, well, that may be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. And they 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 hold truth in abeyance and say that it's not absolute. Well, that's the times in which Ruth was written. It was written at a time when they were going through a seven cycles of, that were spiraling downward and out of control in Israel. If you study the book of Judges, you'll, you'll see those seven cycles. And here's the way those cycles go. It begins with sin. Their sin was idolatry. Their sins were, was adultery. Their sins were all kind of, of, of sins that you can think of. Israel was guilty of that. So it starts with sin. And uh, then moving from sin, it goes to suffering. Because sin always brings suffering in its wake. And then when the suffering gets hard enough and tough enough, it leads to supplication. And when supplication is crying out to God because we're hurting. <laughs> we're crying out to God because, uh, you know, God is bringing judgment upon our sin. And when we cry out to God, supplication, God sends a Savior. Now the Savior in the book of Judges is a human judge. And so God will send a human judge. And uh, we see that all throughout the book of Judges. And after the, the judge comes and helps to clear things up, then they go through a period of silence. So you got that cycle? It begins with sin, suffering, supplication, a Savior, and then silence. And that cycle is repeated seven times. So it's in the middle of one of those cycles when the book of Ruth was written. So you just need to know that Judges is a difficult, sinful time in the life of Israel. So he says, in the days of Judges, there was a famine in the land. Now, the famine meant that God had kind of closed the door of heaven, and there was no more uh, rain to, to make the crops grow. Now, you say, well, how unfair for God to do that? Well, turn to Leviticus chapter 26 just for a moment. I don't think we have this one on the screen, so you'll need to turn in your Bible. Leviticus 26, and let me begin reading in verse 14. The Lord says, But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all the, these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease. And he goes on and says, And you shall sow your seed in vain. Do you see that? You shall sow your seed in vain. God says, one of my ways of dis disciplining my people is to send a famine. Look at verse 20. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So what we need to recognize is this, this famine was coming from the hand of God. 
<coughs> now that may be hard for us to receive, but you see, God is a lot more interested in making us holy than He is making us happy. And sometimes God, like the master pulling on that rope that's wrapped around, it, it, it hurts. It hurts that dog when the master is pulling him back, but it's for the, for the dog's good. Because if the dog keeps going forward, guess what? He's going to choke himself to death. And so here we see that in Ruth, he says, there's sins of famine in the land. That was one of four ways that God disciplined His people, war and pestilence uh, and earthquakes and famine. But in this particular case, it is through a famine. So he says there's a famine in the land. And now when that happened, he says that a man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Two words, sojourn. What does that mean? It means just for a little while. It means he's going down just for a little while. It's, it's bad in Bethlehem, so we're going to leave Bethlehem and try to go down to a good place where we can make a living. But the problem is the place he chose to go. He went down for a little while to Moab. Now, you remember the history of Moab? Moab's history is not, uh, is not very good with Israel. Moab started as a result of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Out of that incestuous relationship came the people of Moab. And the people of Moab resented the people of Israel. And when Israel was headed toward the Canaan land, uh, they wanted to go through Moab as a shorter route, and Moab refused to let them go. So you see, Moab didn't have a good blood between Moab and Israel. In fact, the king Eglon, the king of Moab, actually conquered Israel for 18 years. And remember uh, Ehud and Eglon? Uh, 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 evidently the king of Moab was quite a good sized fella. And so uh, remember uh, Ehud stabbed him and it went all the way in his stomach and he lost the knife in there. That's not good to talk about right before lunch. But anyway, I want you to know that Moab uh, was, was a pretty tough place. In fact, God said in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus that they, the Israelites were to have nothing to do with the Moabites. The scripture says, be ye unequally yoked together, be, be, not a, be not equally yoked together with unbelievers. And so they were not to go down to Moab, they would have nothing to do. But here is the man who leaves Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. He leaves Bethlehem and he goes down to Moab. You know what Moab means? <laughs> According to Vernon McGee, a good colloquialism for uh, for Moab is God's garbage can. So listen to this. Here's the man who leaves the house of bread, going to stay just a little while. He ends up staying a long time, 10 years. And he left the house of bread and he goes down and spends time in the garbage can. Now, this, look again. He says, uh, and uh, the, the, the name of the man was Elimelech. Just write in the, in the flyleaf of your Bible. That means my God is king. Elimelech, my God is king. Now, the name of the wife was Naomi. Naomi means pleasure or pleasantness. So we what we have here is pleasure marrying my God is king. Now, when my God is king stoops to marry pleasure, they have two children. Notice their names. Uh, Elimelech, husband of Noah, uh, I'm sorry, go back up here, uh, in verse uh, 2, and the names of the sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, 
the name of Malon means sickly. Now, how would you like to be introduced that way everywhere you go? I want you to meet my son, sickly. That was his name. And, 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 and Chilion, guess what his name was? Pining away. Now, we've got two sons here. Here, my God is king, stoops to marry pleasure. The end result, as Major Ian Thomas used to say, the end result of that unholy union is sickness and pining away. Now, you see the picture here? Here we got a family, Elimelech, apparently a fairly well-to-do family. The, the famine comes, which is the disciplined hand of God. And when God disciplines us, what's the first thing we need to do? Run away from it? Huh? Are we so run from the discipline of God? Absolutely not. I, I told the first crowd, when I was growing up, my, my mama, whenever I had to be disciplined, she would either go get a switch or she'd make me go get it. Now, anybody ever had that pleasure? And, uh, and, and mama could, she could lay that thing on, you know. And, uh, and I, 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 at first, I wanted to get away from that, you know, and I'd stand. I found out, man, the further I got from her, the more it stung. But if I, I found out, if I'd just get up real close, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't hit me very hard. And, and when God sends discipline, you know what's the best thing to do? Get up real close to God. <laughs> just, just grab him around the ankles. Just pull up to him and just have a repentant heart and say, God, I'm sorry. And that's what we, that's the way we're supposed to respond to the discipline of God. But what did my God is king and pleasure and sickly and pining away, what did they do? They ran away from the discipline of God. And they ran away from the house of bread. You see, there was no bread in the house of bread. But the problem, the reason why there was no bread in the house of bread was because of the sin of the people. And so what they needed to do to get bread back in the house of bread was to repent of their sins. But they didn't do that. They went down to the garbage can, intending to stay just a little while. And notice what it says. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Wow. He never intended to die in the garbage can. He was only going to go there and stay a little while. He was going to sojourn there. He had no idea that what he was doing would lead to his death and read the next verse and, read and, and lead to the death of his two boys. For it says, and Malon and Kilion died. Well, that's the introduction. That's, that leads us to this providence of God. You see, God is in all of that. And then if we would read, and I'm just going to tell you the next little segment, is Ruth and Orpha were the two wives of these two Moabite sons. They, you see, they married after their daddy died. They married. How they met them, we don't know. Maybe they were sitting in a class in the University of Moab. I don't know. And, uh, but they saw this beautiful black-headed girl and fell in love. And I can just see Naomi's face when they come in and say, Mama, I found the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. A Moabite. Well, listen, she was an unbeliever. She was an idol worshiper. She worshiped Chemosh, the god of war. And the way they worshiped Chemosh, the god of war, was burn, getting the idol to a red hot phase, red hot, and then they throw their babies into the idol. I can just hear Naomi saying, sons, you don't want to marry an idolater. But yes, they did. And within a matter of a short time, and the reason I say short time is because neither Malon nor Kilion had kids. They died 
without kids. They were barren. You see, that, they were in the garbage can. It's hard to have fruit when you're in the garbage can. And then Naomi, after the boys died, her husband died, here they were, three-fourths of the crowd that left the house of bread to go down to the garbage can, three-fourths of them have died. Now, after a while, Naomi hears that God has lifted the famine, and there's bread again in the house of bread. You can, you can read that in beginning in, the, in about verse 6 and on down to verse 14. And so she decides to go back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And the two daughters-in-law, Ruth and, and uh, uh, Orpha, decide to go with her. And you can read in that how that Ruth and Orpha say, we're going to go with you. And so Naomi tries to convince them not to. By the way, don't ever take advice from a carnal Christian. You hear what I'm saying? Naomi wasn't right with God, and she was trying to tell them what to do. But they decided they were going to go with her. So here we got. Here's the picture. They decide to go back to Bethlehem. Fifty miles, three ladies, three widows walking together. And as they walk, Naomi takes advantage of the opportunity to teach them. I can just hear her in my sanctified imagination telling them about how God brought them out of Egypt, telling them about how God gave the Ten Commandments, telling them about the manna that came from heaven, telling them about the Passover. She's teaching these Gentile women about her God. And Ruth seems to be wide-eyed and open eyed She's like a sponge. She's listening to all of this. Orpha, not so interested. And so they're walking back to Bethlehem, 50 miles, a lot of time to teach. And as they walk, Ruth and Naomi are engaged, talking. But they notice Orpha is not up there with them. She keeps falling back. And they say, Orpha, come on. Come on up here. And she'll come up for a little while, and then she'll drop back. She'll come up, she'll drop back. And then finally, Orpha comes to Naomi and says, I'm going to return back to Moab. I'm going to the garbage can. Now, she kisses Naomi, turns her back, and goes back to the garbage can. She was, again, what Thomas called an awakened soul, but an unregenerate spirit. She had been convicted. She had even had some feelings and emotions toward Jehovah God. She had reflected on it. She had decided she was going to go. And then she got to a certain point and said, no, I'm not going to do it. She turned her back to the house of bread, turned her face to the garbage can, and walked away from God, and walked off the pages of history. We never hear Orpha again. It says, Orpha kissed her. Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, Ruth, why don't you go with her? Verse 16, don't beg me to leave you or to return from following after you. Where you go, I'll go. Where, where you, where your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. And where you're buried, I'll be buried. You see, that was what I think Ruth's conversion. That's when she made an, un, an irreversible commitment to Jehovah God. Wow. 
Now, what was God doing through all of that? God was using His providence to bring Ruth into the family of the greatest king of Israel. And because you see, David became the great, the, David became the grandson of Ruth. You'll see that in chapter 4 when we get there. God uses several things. Now, let me just really tell you real quickly what God used providentially. That's why I call it a providence to appreciate. The first thing God used was a famine. Do you notice that? If there had not been a famine, Ruth would never have heard about God. Had there not been a famine, then Ruth would have never married Boaz. Had there not been a famine, then there would never have been a child born to Ruth and Boaz. And if a child had not been born to Ruth and Boaz, there would never have been a King David. And if there had never been a King David, there would never have been a Jesus Christ. All because of a famine. You know, sometimes hard things come into our life and we want to question God. Those hard times are not meant to hurt you. They're meant to press you closer to his heart. Providence. But not only did he use a famine. Secondly, he, he used what I call the failures of their old religion. You see, the worship of Chemosh had not done much for Ruth. I mean, all it had done is bring sadness and death and heartache into Ruth. And so the failure of the worship of the idol gods to meet the deepest need of her heart made her more open to hear about the true God. And, and you know, our, our missionaries overseas, when I go to India, one of the incentives, one of the helpful things in evangelizing the Hindus and the Muslims is that their religion has not met the deepest need of their heart. I mean, they've been religious all their life, but they've still got an empty ache in their heart and, and, and their religion won't feel it, fill it. You know, that's what Augustine said. He said, there is a Christ-shaped vacuum in every heart, and nothing, nothing will fill it but Jesus. Nothing. So thank God their religion failed, but thank God it opened Ruth up to hear the truth. So there was not only a famine, but there was the failure of religion. Thirdly, there was a family. What, what did God put into Ruth's path providentially? He put a family now, I don't know if they live next door or what, but I can just, remember, I can just picture in my sanctified imagination, I can just picture, uh, uh, I can just picture Malon bringing Ruth home to meet his mother. And uh, Ruth sitting down with a cup of goat's milk and some bagels and starts telling her, teaching her the Old Testament. Now, can you imagine that? Here's this little Gentile girl hearing for the first time about this true God that had delivered his people and fed his people and met the needs of his people and gave them Ten Commandments to guide their lives. I can see her eyes getting bigger and bigger. You see, God used a family. And by the way, it was even a family out of the will of God. <laughs> they were in the, in the garbage can all because they disobeyed God and ran from discipline instead of repentance. Hey, that's Romans 8, 28. God works all things together, even our mistakes and failures and sin. Hallelujah. Amen, Brother Tommy. That was good. God uses all things together for our good. He used a famine. He used the failure of religion. He used a family. He used a funeral. 
In fact, three of them. Elimelech died. Malon died. Kilion died. We've got three widows. Every time they walked away from the cemetery, I'm sure they said, that could be me. I'm a young woman, but my husband was young. That could be me. I could be the one they're putting down in the grave. And that makes you think about eternity. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. We know not what another day will bring. When Kennedy was assassinated, Governor Conley of Texas was in the car with him, and he was also wounded. And sometime later, the press was asking Governor Conley, what were you thinking about through all of that? And at first he tried to give the, you know, politically correct answer. Oh, I was thinking about my president. (laughs) And they pushed him on it and said, really? What were you really thinking about? He said, well, guys, I'll be honest with you. He said, I thought I was going to die. See what I'm saying? Sometimes God will use the death of a friend or a family member to shake us a little bit. I can't tell you how many times throughout my ministry I've buried somebody and that next church service, those folks show up. And I hadn't seen them in church in a long, long time. And I don't consider that a bad thing. I consider that a good thing. How God used that. He used a family. He used a funeral. And last thing, let me just say this. He used the fear of separation. Fear of separation. You see, Ruth had fallen in love with her mother-in-law. And she said, I don't ever want to leave you. I don't ever want to forsake you. And so she didn't want to ever be separated from Orpha. And can you imagine how God would use that? Orpha is saved. She knows God. I don't. And if either one of us die, we'll never see each other again. But I believe that helped to motivate her to come to the true God and put her faith and trust in Him. When the Lord's Supper is passed, I've seen it over and over again. I've seen a little wife reach in and get the elements. Her husband is sitting next to her. He takes the cup, he takes the and passes it on. He doesn't take the elements. You know why? He's not saved. The Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people. And that's a picture of what will happen at death. They'll be separated forever. Now, I want to say that's not the highest motive, but it is a motive. Young teenagers here today unsaved, do you know what it would mean to your parents if you gave your heart to Christ? Not to even mention the joy it would bring to the angels in heaven and the joy it would bring to the heart of God. Think of the joy it would bring to those who love you most. Well, I've got to run on. You're not listening nearly fast enough. So let me just quickly touch on two other points. The second thing I see is not only a providence to appreciate, but there is an example to denigrate. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, In verses 12 through 15, I told you a while ago, where uh, we see in in verse 4, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. You see, here is an example. The, 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 The thing I don't want you to do is to do what Orpha did. 
uh, her example is a bad example. She turned her back on Bethlehem. She turned her back on the house of God. And she walked into the garbage can again. My dear friend, I pray nobody would do that here today. I pray nobody will turn their back on the Lord and walk into the garbage can. Please don't do that. Today would be a great day to not follow that example, but to follow the example of Ruth. And that's my last point. Here it is. Not only is there an example to denigrate, but lastly, there is a profession to emulate. Now, don't you think that's a cute outline? I really had to work on that one. A profession to emulate. What do I mean by that? Well, don't follow the example of Orpha. Follow the example of Ruth. She wrapped her arms around the feet of Naomi and said, your God will be my God. In other words, that's the, that's the, the profession. I see several things in, in that that verse 16 and 17, I, 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 you know, don't ask me to leave you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. That kind of thing. I see a, a few things. Let me just, I'm just going to hit them real quickly. I won't, I won't stay there. First thing I see is repentance. Repentance. He, he, he says, entreat me not to leave you to, or return from following after you. She said, I, I'm turning my back on the garbage can and I'm turning my face to the house of bread. And that's what repentance is. Repentance means I'm going one way, the wrong way, and I stop, and I turn around, and I go the other way. That's repentance. And that's what Ruth was doing. She turned around. She's no longer living in the garbage can. She's now going to the house of bread. So I see repentance. And repentance is necessary. You know, we want to slip into the kingdom of God without repentance today. We want to take our sin with us. And we want to say we're Christian, but keep living like we're lost. Oh, that scares me. That scares me. Repentance. And the second thing, I see faith. Your God shall be my God. Boy, that was an incredible decision. All of her past, she had been an idol worshiper. She worshiped the demon god Chemosh, who approved human sacrifice. And so she's saying, I, I believe your God is the God. So we see faith. You see? That's why we need to imitate that profession. What are the two things necessary for salvation? Repentance and faith. Repent of our sin and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I not only see repentance and faith, I see surrender. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, she became interested in whatever Naomi was interested in. And that's what we need to do when we get saved. We need to lay our agenda on the back burner. You see, what, what Ruth did is she took Moab off the back burner. She said, now, Lord, what you want for me to do is what I want to do. Faith, repentance, and surrender. Then there is determination. She said, your people will be my God. We, we want to ease people into the church and then throw the demands of discipleship on them. That's not being fair. People need to know when they become a part of the body of Christ what that means. It's not just to say, give a nod to God, but it's to say, I'm serious about this. I want to live a life as a learner of Jesus Christ, and I want to become conformed to His image. And so many times, people slip into church, and then they hear the demands, and they say, oh, I didn't sign up for that. 
But Ruth signed up for that. So there is determination. Determination. And then lastly, there is perseverance. Commitment that leads to perseverance. You see, she said, where you are buried, that's where I will be buried. Okay. That's the kind of profession we need to emulate. That kind of repentance and faith and determination and surrender and perseverance. Well, don't be like Orpha. Don't be like Orpha. Be like Ruth.